If you take out a Bible and stand to your feet, Matthew chapter 1, we're starting this series on the mothers of the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1 is where I'm going to read. We're about to read, starting in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I know a genealogy doesn't sound very exciting, but it, trust me, this is a little more exciting than you could imagine. It says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by, and now we have an interesting addition, Tamar. Typically speaking, in the ancient world, it was overwhelmingly rare that someone included a woman in a genealogy. What in the world is Jesus doing? He doesn't stop there, though. He says, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. That's a really good one. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Welcome to a series about the mothers of the Messiah, the surprising lineage of Jesus. Let's pray. God, help. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. This year we moved, my family and I, we moved from one house that we lived in for like a dozen years to another house, and when you move in, there's a lot to do. There's all sorts of ordering and reordering and decorating and cleaning and preparing and tearing out and putting in and all the, all the above. And it has also been, as soon as we got in, it seems as if COVID hit one person and then another and then another and then another. And as many of you know, we have eight kids, which means it's like a domino. One person gets something, someone else gets it. I got meningitis. It was like nonstop drama in the house, which meant a few weeks ago, someone stopped by the house. And I remember when they came in, I was walking around trying to explain why there were still all these boxes over here and all that's not done there and this was not there. And I was sort of apologizing everywhere I went because I was somewhat embarrassed at the mess, because my house was a mess. But it's not just my house, and it's not just me. <laughs> if I were to ask some of you guys, how many of you have a closet that you like to keep the door shut, you might raise your hand. <laughs> or if I were to ask some of you how many times you've ever scrambled as soon as someone was about to get in your car because there were french fries or there was stuff all over. Or if I were just to get a little more specific and ask, is your family a mess? Is your mind a mess? Is your heart a mess? The reality about us is that ever since the Garden of Eden, we've, we've pretty much been a mess. We don't like to admit the mess. In fact, we certainly do not show our mess on social media, which is why we take a picture a hundred times before we post it, to be able to assure people that we are all together having beautiful quiet times with a beautiful cup of coffee and a perfect journal with very good handwriting in a room that is clutter-free in a life that is clutter-free as well. But the reality is that I'm hoping today that we'd be willing to look at this first mother of Jesus and realize that we might be a mess. Ironically, the woman I'm about to talk about, this first woman, Tamar, she's the least messy person in the first story that we're about to read. But we've got lessons to take away from this, and I've just got one idea, really. This is a one-point sermon that I'm going to tell a whole story about. 
But here's the, the only thing I'm hoping you walk out with in a very, very visceral way. And I simply want you to grab a hold of this truth. No matter how big the mess or how twisted the story, nothing is stronger than the grace of God. No, no longer how long, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the situation, it doesn't matter how deep, how dark, how jacked up the life can get, no matter how big the mess, how twisted the story, nothing is stronger than the grace of God. So let's just look at it. Genesis 38 is where we're going to start. Genesis 38 it's a story of a man named Judah that's going to marry a woman named Tamar. And it starts in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now let me just, before we even get into this, I want to make sure you understand the context because chapter 38 is coming in the middle of what's called the Joseph narrative. Joseph is one of the very few high points in all of scripture that goes to Genesis chapter 50. He's going to save the world. He's going to save Egypt. He's going to save God's people. He's going to save a lot of things. And yet, ironically, what we know from the genealogy of Jesus is that the Messiah is not coming from the genealogy of Joseph, whom I would choose. If I was choosing a Messiah, I would choose Joseph. That's where I would choose it. I would say him. And yet we know that he is going to not be called the lion of the tribe of Joseph. He's going to be called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, it says here that Judah turned aside from his brothers. He left his brothers. The reason this is significant is because the brothers were supposed to stay together. It's significant because God's people were always warned, do not turn aside, don't leave the household of faith, do not be unequally yoked, don't go into these other places. And yet something has happened that he's, he's had inner turmoil where he hasn't stayed with his other 10 brothers, what will soon be 11 brothers. He hasn't stayed with them. He's, he's left and he's gone to a land of other deities. He's gone to a land that has consistently caused God's people to turn astray, which you might say, well, why would he do such a thing? Well, we know because in the chapter previous to this, his brother Joseph was his daddy's favorite. He had a coat of many colors, and Judah was the guy that came up with the idea to sell his brother into slavery. Judah is the guy who came up with the idea, let's take that coat of many colors off of his body, and let's put ram's blood all over this thing. Let's put, you know, blood bloody this thing up, take it back to the father and say, Father, can you identify this? Let's go and bring this to his dad and let's do this. This is the guy that is now guilty of human trafficking. This is the guy that is coming from, I'm just going to be honest, a very dysfunctional family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Judah. So we're talking three generations previously. Abraham goes into a land and, and when he's got his good-looking wife, he says, tell them you're my sister so that they will treat me well. And then twice he does this where they take her to be his spouse. That's jacked up. Isaac goes and does similar things. Jacob is a schemer. Now, Judah, all I'm trying to let you know is this is a highly dysfunctional family. If your family is jacked up, I want to remind you again, no matter how big the mess, how twisted the story, nothing is greater than the grace of God. I also need you to know this because... If you are reading the Bible, maybe you're new to Christianity or maybe you're new to the Bible, and if you're reading the Bible and you're looking for really good examples, I just need you to know the Bible is not full of really great examples. The Bible is full of really messed up, jacked up, messy lives, messy people that have a great God. That's what the Bible is full of. And if you're reading the Bible looking for like great moral examples, you could say, well, what about David? What, who cheated on his wife and committed murder you know what about Solomon he had 700 
wives and 300 girlfriends on the side, you know? What about, and you fill in the blank, you, you name just about at every single turn, all of us, like Judah, have turned aside to a certain Adulamite. Verse 2, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. We don't even know his wife's name. It says, he took her and went into her. He just saw her. Kind of like Cookie Monster, see Cookie. <laughs> what Cookie? Eat cookie. I mean, what an interesting thing. He saw a certain woman, and he took her and went into her. Now, I, I need to pause right now. This is not a rated PG sermon. This is about to get PG-13 or higher. We do have a kids' ministry. This is for kids as well as any of you adults that have very tender ears. Uh, you're welcome to go into kids. This is about to get a little messier. I'm, just, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to be vulgar, but I'm going to read the Bible. This is a chapter I have, I have never read this chapter to my children. I'm just letting you know that, Okay. <laughs> I have it. Verse 3, she conceived, she bore a son. He called his name Ur. Everyone say Ur. Please don't name your son that. <laughs> she conceived again, bore a son. She called, he called him uh, Onan. <laughs> You're going to be clear on why you don't want to name him Onan in a minute. Uh, yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Sheila. I think they really wanted a girl. <laughs> Sheila. This is my son, Sheila. Judah was in Chezeb when, when she bore him, and Judah took... A wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Just so we're clear, in Bible days, they did uh, arranged marriages, all right? So when I was young, I would hear about these things. I thought it was a horrible idea. I now have eight kids and children that need to get married one day. I love the idea of arranged marriages. <laughs> like, that sounds awesome to me. That sounds so good to, to be able to arrange that and for me to have the control. Wouldn't that sound great, parents? <laughs> Judah took a wife. Her name was Tamar. means like a palm tree. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, I don't know the full explanation on this, and I've heard people have a, have a hard time with God and saying, I thought God was a God of mercy. I need you to know that God is a God of mercy. God is also a God of justice. And I don't know what it was. We don't know what the details of this were that that Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord. I do know this. If you are married to someone that is evil in the eyes of the Lord, I bet your life stinks. And many times what we consider to be the retributive justice of God that seems too harsh and unmerciful is actually the loving mercy of God because what, it, what seems like vengeance on one side, and this is why vengeance belongs to God because God knows, the very definition of justice according to Scripture is that which is right in the eyes of the Lord we got to be careful even right now in our society. Something could be legal, that doesn't make it just. America has many laws, some of which are just, some of which are unjust. And so even if a court upholds a law, that doesn't make it just because justice is that which is right in the eyes of God. That's going to be important here in a minute as we're reading this because it says he took her and, and, and erred that, that he was wicked in the eyes. The Lord puts him to death. So Judah said to Onan, his brother, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, this is an odd law. It's called uh, leveret marriage. From the, the Latin word, uh, like, like lever, levier, it's, that's the word for like brother-in-law. In ancient times, there was a law that if you were married and, and your husband died, that his brother, if he had a brother, legally had to marry you and take you in and then the children that you had would be counted toward him and toward his estate and the land and all these kinds of things. I know this sounds very strange to us and, and this is an odd story because as we read it here we're going to find that, that Onan, it says that Onan 
But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, let's get clear, this is not a one-time thing. He didn't do this once. This was a habitual thing. Whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. Now, this is interesting. It says, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so he put him to death also. Now, this is a jacked-up family. This is a messed up family. Now, by the way, let me get clear on what this is not talking about. Because I've had more people ask me about, and I'm going to keep this as down, dumbed down as I can. Pastor Mike, is this about birth control? Answer is no. Is this about personal pleasing? No. Is, what this is about is something else, okay? This is not a passage that's describing why it's unbiblical to have, because people ask me this, especially having eight kids. They usually ask, are you Mormon? No. Are you Catholic? priest I'm like I'm married like oh that's right uh are you Muslim no why do you have why would you have eight kids you know um it's you know you must love kids I'm like no I I love my wife that's how you get them right so uh so there's there's a reality on that but here was the issue when Tamar marries Judah when Tamar marries Ur scholars tell us she's probably 13 14 or 15 years old let that sink in soon as you became of age, so Ur is probably 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. As soon as a female starts to be able to produce and, and she's past that, as soon as you're basically like what we would consider dating age, throughout a lot of human history, perhaps most of human history, people were considered to be marital age. And so they would go and they would arrange these marriages. So when she gets widowed because Ur was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and she marries Onan. She might be 14, 15, and then maybe she's 15, 16. She's now 16, 17, 18, something like that years old when she's now been twice widowed. Here's the reality about women in the ancient world. They cannot get a job. They cannot work. And if you're seen as widowed, you're seen as possibly bad karma. If you're twice widowed, you're super bad karma. Who would ever want to be with you? You're seen as a curse, as we're about to find out. So what God did and what, what happened, and, and you find this in the law, you'll find this later like in, in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you're going to find where God set up laws and God had put it in the hearts of people that, that pe- vulnerable people were to be taken care of. So she was, at this point, she was a widow. Now, you find this as a theme in scripture, that God says, I am the God of the oppressed and the God of the widow. I am the God of the vulnerable and the widow. I am the God of the orphan and the widow. I am the God that takes care of. I I keep the rights of the widow in my mind. Now, when we think of widows, most of us are oftentimes thinking of a widow that someone lived a whole life and he left an inheritance to his wife and she's a widow. And I'm not, and and we need to take care of 75-year-old widows that have an inheritance in a house. But throughout a lot of human history, what it really came down to was this. If a woman was widowed and they were regularly widowed young because they were getting married young, you're 20 years old, you got no options. Now that woman is desperately vulnerable. The only person with any power to do anything about it is the father-in-law because he's the guy, power differential here, he's the guy that had a power to have a son to be able to give to this to this woman, which is why what we're going to read, he's going to say here is in verse 11, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up, for he feared that she would die, he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, what he's actually doing is living by fear that she's a curse because he won't look in the mirror and realize the curse is not this woman Tamar. The curse is this family that's coming from you, Judah. 
You, you think she's the problem because you can't look in the mirror and realize the one that's raising a family that's jacked up is, it's the same guy that sold his brother into slavery. And now that's the same guy that's going to go and lie. And so in ancient world, like in, in 2021 right now, this is a time right now where if you're going to make it in life, you need to go get educated. So like I tell my kids, I tell my daughters, hey, girls, you could do anything. I tell my little girl, I mean, my girl, girl and I, I'm like, Anaya, you could be the president of the United States. You go get educated. No one's going to mess with you. Dear Lord, Jesus, make sure you get fully in Anaya because that girl's got spunk and she could change the world. That's what can happen through her. I just tell her, you got to go get it. You will get educated. In the ancient world, you didn't make it because you got educated. You made it because you got married and you had children. Your marriage and your children were today's education. Your marriage and your children, that was your 401K, that was your security, that was your protection, that was your everything. Which is why if you were a widow that has to go back to your father's house, this is like when in the New Testament when Jesus would say, if you divorce your wife for any reason except for sexual immorality, you cause her to commit adultery. What's he saying? He is saying... That that woman's going to have no options but to go off and play the field. So if you divorce your wife for any reason other than the fact that she cheated on you, you're causing her to commit adultery because she's going to have to go do something else. Well, that's how it was in the ancient world. It, it's some, similar to where we've done a lot of ministry in, in lower-income neighborhoods here in town. I remember one time going up to one of the guys that was selling drugs, and he sold drugs, I mean, very, very successfully. And I said, hey, man, you, I said, bro, don't do this, man, like... You've got a wife. He had two kids. I was like, why are, you, why are you doing this? He said, Pastor Mike, I don't smoke it. I just sell it. I'm like, I get that, but, like, but why are you doing this? I go do something. He said, Pastor Mike, I can't read. I got no options. It's like if, if you wanted me to do something else, you would have had to be in my neighborhood a long time ago because when this happened was when I was in like first, second, third grade. That's when this, and indeed, that's the reality. The reality is right now, if a kid doesn't read by third grade, we know that kid's on a pipeline to go to prison one day. This is one of the reasons why it is an act of justice when we go out into the neighborhoods that we go out into. Any of you that have ever done stuff with Wendy here on staff and, and done things, whether we're in Carver Gardens or Pine Ridge or, or Holly Heights, when you go into some of the places that we'll go, we're like, okay, we are trying to address zip codes where if there's a child born in certain zip codes in Gainesville, Florida, the chances of them making it are so much dim so diminished compared to other places. If you were to ask me, what does this message of Onan mean? This, this Onan where he was, Onan, he goes into her, but he spills the seed on the side. Why? Because because he wanted the benefits of the relationship without the responsibility of the relationship. Beware of people that want the benefits of the relationship with you without the responsibilities of the relationship with you. Beware of you being the kind of person that wants the benefits of relationship without the responsibilities. The sin of Onan is not the sin of birth control. The sin of Onan is the sin of you've got the power to help a vulnerable person and you won't do it. That's the sin of Onan. It's a sin of justice. It's a sin of wickedness, of looking at people where it's in your hands. It's in your power to do something to help them. And it's so easy to say, well, that was my brother's. It's so easy to say, well, that's not my neighborhood. That's not my people. That's not my stuff. And God says, if it's in your power to help the vulnerable and you don't, to you it is sin. Can I get an amen? See, this is why when I'm reading this story, I'm like, oh, my God, you are so righteous and you are so holy 
And so, of course, it says in verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. I want you to notice the virtue of Tamar. She's waiting. She's waiting patiently. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to, to the sheep shears. There's a, a sense in the matter of like, uh, he waits till the time of comfort is done. Like there was this short period of time. And as soon as it was done, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments. She has faithfully been wearing her widow's garments. She has faithfully been waiting for Judah to keep his word. And she covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. And went, for she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she, and she was not going to be given him in marriage. She now realizes, my father-in-law Judah is as bad as I think he is. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for he, she had covered her face. It's interesting to me that when Judah, as soon as his wife was gone, as soon as she's gone, the next thing he does is gets with his buddy, the Adulamite, this Canaanite, this pagan man. And what's he say? Hey, man, your, wife is, your wife's gone. You know what you should do right now to comfort yourself? Let's go get a prostitute. So he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come to me, come into me? And I want you to notice that she knew where to go. And she knew what to do if she was going to entrap him because she knew what kind of a man he was. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? Now, this is where he's got the spirit of stupid all over him. <laughs> because she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. Now, these would be items of a person that's actually got some kind of wealth. It's also got the equivalent of today, it'd be like your initials. This is, you'd probably carry something like a little cylinder around your neck. You'd put your initials, you'd get waxed when you had a document. You would put your little initial, initials on there, whatever this was. She says, leave all this stuff. And it says, so he gave them to her and went into her. And she could see by him, just so we're clear on this, this would be the equivalent of saying, what will you give me? Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you the passcode to my phone, and I'll leave you my phone. Or I'll give you my wallet and all my credit cards. The spirit of stupid is all over this man that is spiraling. What we are watching is a man, and I just want to be clear here, friends. The reason you need to know so much that it's no matter how big the mess or how twisted the story, nothing is greater than the grace of God, is that when I'm reading this story, I don't know that until the last few weeks getting ready for this, I have realized what a wretch of a man that Judah was. When Jesus is choosing the line through which he's going to come, through which he's going to have a tribe that's called the line of the tribe of, that he would choose this human, trafficking, lying, scheming, conniving, fornicating, adulterating man, that this is the man that he chooses. <laughs> By the way, let me just make a little pause here. I'm consistently watching people leave the church because they feel like the church is so full of hypocrites. And I'm watching people who don't want to come into the church because the church is so full of hypocrites. Friends, I, I just need you to know, it is a tremendous comfort to me that when I look at the hypocrisy of the characters in the Bible and the fact that the Bible is very honest about the wretchedness of God's people, it is a big comfort to me. If you're avoiding church because of hypocrisy, I just want to tell you, you need to thank God that the church is full of hypocrites. You need a place to feel at home. Because the Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. 
If you're reading this story and you're like, I'm so glad I'm not like Judah. You've missed the story still. If you're reading the story, you're like, well, and I mean, let's face it, if you're kind of, if you're really conservative, it's like, well, what would that, well, this woman shouldn't be out there prostituting herself. Just like that guy shouldn't be selling drugs on the street. There's something in us that needs to listen and say, wait a minute, what's up with the systems in place that have sent people to these places that they've gone? And then if you, if, if you lean really progressive, there's got to be this other part where you realize it's like, wait a minute, God is going to hold everybody to an account? Oh, Jesus. Give us mercy. So he turns, he lays with her. He says, I'm going to give you this pledge. She says she conceives by him. Verse 19, then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, and he didn't find her. He asked the men of the place, where is, and now we find out what he thought she was. Where is the cult prostitute? The Canaanites, for them, prostitution was not just sexual, it was worship, it was demonic. It was where you were going to join yourself to a prostitute while also joining yourself to the deities that they worshipped. You would, you would be having sex in the name of a god. So just so we're clear on the character of Judah, the great patriarch, he thought he was sleeping with a cult prostitute. They said to him, no cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I haven't found her. Also the men of the place said, for the third time, that's using the word cult prostitute, has no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we'll be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. So about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Isn't that evil? Isn't that terrible? The girl you said to wait for Sheila, who you're never going to give. She's become immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, and this is maybe the, the final picture of the character of Judah, this great patriarch. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It's amazing how horrible sin looks. It's amazing how horrible my sin looks when it's done by somebody else. I don't know that I'm the best driver there ever was. But I was recently driving and, and there was only two car spaces backed up on I-75, only two car spaces. And some very arrogant, cocky, careless driver popped right in between us. I was so angry. I was so upset with this sinner. <laughs> I was very glad my wife was not in the car with me because there's been many times when she's like, Michael, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. There's only two car spaces and, and I do it and, and I'm like, baby, I do things for the Lord. I'm going somewhere to serve God. She's like, is that what you're telling yourself? It's amazing how much I hate pushy driving when someone else does it. Oh, it irks me. There's this one, we get on I-75 North from Newberry Road, and there's two lanes. 
and, and you're both there in the front, but the guy on the left should be able to maybe get there. For, and and I, I, I'll try to get in front. Boy, does it bother me when someone else gets in front of me. It's amazing how real the hypocrisy is of me. It, I, I turn on the news, and, and I will watch politicians do something, and I will watch the other side call out this side for the thing that that side did 12 years ago. But when this side does what that side did 12 years ago, they say, see? And now this side that 12 years ago was condemning that side is like, well, well, if it was okay when you did it, then it's got to be. And, and, you're, and you're like, wait, wait, wait. 12 years ago, you condemned them for this. But now when this is done by y'all, now it's so, it's so interesting what happens when you become addicted to your echo chamber that justifies you in your Judah-like sin. I'm going to say it again. It's amazing how much I hate my sin when someone else does it. But when I do it, I have to justify myself because the human heart has a need to justify itself. When I was a kid, the first preacher I ever heard of was a guy named Jimmy Swaggart. I was a kid, and, and Jimmy Swaggart was uh, he would get on TV and he was raging angry at the immorality. I mean, just raging at the immorality of another TV preacher. I, I ended up finding out through my, my show, Saturday Night Live, that Jimmy Swaggart was doing the same thing that the other guy was doing, which I just concluded, I'm like, well, I guess if there's not enough prophets in the church, God will prophesy through the church lady on Saturday Night Live. And I remember hearing someone say, I, I went to, it's one of the earliest sermons I do remember when this person preached, a guy named David Wilkerson, he said, when someone hates something too much, sometimes it's a sign of something going on inside of them. Tamar's been immoral? Tamar's sleeping with someone she's not married to? Tamar's, she's been immoral. Burn her. It's like, like, by the way, you didn't have to. They, usually they would stone people. You burned people if you really wanted someone to suffer. It was hyper cruel. It was hyper wicked. It was, it was this hyper reaction to it. Judah says, bring her out. Let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, this brilliant woman, she sent word to the father-in-law. She could have shamed him publicly. Instead, she does it privately. The woman's got skills. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please, and here's the key word maybe of the entire passage, identify them. Identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And when Judah opened them, he identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. What is it like to be Tamar? What is it like to get married at 13 or 14 or 15, and you marry a wicked young man named Ur? I wonder if she heard of 
Yahweh God, because she was a Canaanite that probably believed in many deities, I'm assuming. The only family on planet Earth that knew of the one true God was the line of Abraham, basically. And she marries into this godly family, supposedly, but she comes to find out that the godly family is the kind of family if your father-in-law sleeps with cult prostitutes and your husband is a wicked man. I wonder if she prayed prayers like, if there is a true Yahweh God, will you please do something about my abusive husband? And he might have, and he did. But then she marries again and comes to find out that it's not an exception to the rule, that this family is producing quite bad fruit. And then she becomes a widow, and she's dressed in widow's clothing, and, and life is getting hard as she finds out she's going to be a widow for life. And she finally comes up with this plan to do sexual entrapment and to get him. And, and, and I, I just, I wonder what it's, like, what is it like to have your, your old father-in-law push his body up against you? What is... What is that like? What, what, is, what is it like now? She's been living in the shadows and now she's being dragged out to be killed. God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Are you there? Are you real? I wonder what kind of prayers she cried out to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. As she brings them out, this. This line of the Messiah is in trouble. And the surprise of the story of Tamar to me is that the line of the Messiah, the hero of this line is not Judah. The hero is Tamar. Because up until now, I mean, I think maybe we all sort of think, well, God chose the seed of Judah. But just as much as he chose the seed of Judah, he chose the womb of Tamar. And there's some of you that I need to let you know that God has chosen you. And you might say, I don't deserve it. Yeah, there, there's not a deserving person in this story. If you think the story has a direct application like, hey, go be like Tamar. Go be like Judah. I, I don't know that I have a great. What I could tell you the great one here is the one that gives the grace because no matter how big the mess and how sordid or twisted the story, there is nothing that is greater than the lascivious nature of the grace of God. That the grace of God breaks in, and it says she brought the staff and said, do you recognize these? And it's the first time where there's even a hint of change in Judah because Judah is going to matter, and we need Judah to get it together, and we need Judah to change. And Judah left to himself is a disaster that will destroy himself, stay in Canaan, and the line's going to be destroyed. But Judah has an appointment several chapters later in Egypt when he's going to have a brother named Joseph that has ascended to the number two place, most powerful man on planet Earth. And at that time, he's going to test his brothers that have been wretched, and he knows it. And Judah is going to be among his brothers, and Joseph is going to say, give me the youngest brother, Benjamin. And they're going to take Benjamin, and he's going to say, I will take him unless you bring back the others. And he said, they said, no, we won't. He says, well, I'm taking your brother, and there's nothing they can do. And it is at that point that Judah, you can see, it's going to take chapters, and it's going to take time, and it's going to take identification. Judah's going to step up and say to Joseph, don't take Benjamin, take me instead. This is called repentance. 
that I believe with all of my heart that the repentance preacher to Judah was a woman named Tamar who says, Judah, I need you to look in the mirror and identify. And church, I need you to know that there is nothing greater than the grace of God. I need you to understand right now that there is nothing bigger, nothing greater, nothing stronger than the grace of God. But to access the grace of God, nothing changes until you look in the mirror and identify. Nothing changes until you look. This is, friends, I, I, I'm preaching to you right now the doctrine of, of forgiveness. There is forgiveness and grace and mercy in God. But I cannot preach forgiveness without preaching repentance. Because Jesus said repentance and forgiveness of sins must be preached to all the nations. And right now I want to proclaim it to the nations. That no matter how twisted the story, no matter how dark the sin, no matter how jacked up the life, nothing is greater than the grace of God. But nothing changes until you look in the mirror and you're honest. See, what Judah's problem was up until now, he thought the reason his sons was that were dying was because of her. She must be cursed. Because there's something in us we need to be able to look down on other people when our lives are falling apart. When I get in trouble, I want to be able to blame somebody else. But Judah, the problem wasn't Tamar. The curse wasn't Tamar. The curse was you, buddy. And it's at that point that he looks at her and he stops self-justifying and he makes the statement, and I love how the Bible says it, you are more righteous. She has been more righteous than me. Notice it does not say she's righteous. I want to get real clear. He doesn't say she's righteous, okay? He said she's more righteous than me. It's the first time when he finally acknowledges, wait a minute, I'm, I'm in, she, she's guilty of incest. She's guilty of fornication. She's guilty of sexual entrapment. She's guilty of being twisted, all those things. But she's more righteous than him because he's a slave-trading, fornicating Lying, stealing, man of injustice, man of unrighteousness. He's all of the above, and he finally has a point that he seems to be catching Ephesians 2.8 where it says, You are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You are saved by grace through faith. See, the reason I am not... I am not troubled by the hypocrisy I see in Judah, and the reason I'm not troubled by the hypocrisy I see in David, or Solomon, or Peter, or you fill in the blank, or any of you, the reason that the hypocrisy, even right now when everyone's like, look at the hypocrisy in the church, the reason I'm not troubled by it is that it is evidence to me that the thing that is keeping me is the grace of God. I am not holding on to God because I'm so strong. God is holding on to me because he is. But there's some Judas right now that you need to identify, and you need to identify right now, even today. I want to be very honest with you. There is an amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that will save a wretch like you. But Judah, you've got to look at the staff and the cord and say, it's mine. It's me. Is it me? Yes, it's me. There's got to be something in you that stops pointing at the Tamars and stops pointing at the others and says, it's me. Because no matter how big the mess and how twisted the story, there is nothing stronger than the grace of God. Tamars, I got good news for you today. If you're a Tamar in here, you serve a God of justice. He sees you. Church, if, we're gonna, if we are going to extract some principle from these stories, I, I, I'm calling us to be those that, 
that do not commit the sin of Onan. That we do not overlook the vulnerable when it's in our power to do something about. But if you happen to be a Judah, I want you to know that we have a God of mercy. And if you will come clean, he will clean you up. If you will look in the mirror, he will change you from the inside out. Mike, how do I apply the sermon today? Well, it's simply this. I, I want you to give up your religion, and I want you to live by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Give up your religion, and by that I mean I want you to give up your comparing, because I think Judah's comparing, and he finally realizes she's more righteous than me. I thought I was more righteous than Here I am, a believer. She's a non-believer. And, and, and by the way, that's, isn't that humbling when non-believers are better than believers? And I see it all the time. Mike, what, what do you want me to do? I, if you're still looking down on other people, give it up. If you're still looking down on other religions, give it up. If you're still looking down on people of other persuasions, give it up. There's nothing that's the only thing that you can have to boast in is the grace of God. That's it. If you're still looking down on people that vote differently than you, give it up. If you're still looking down on the people that post differently than you on social media, give that up. And if you still think that your mess keeps you from being written into God's story, give it up. Because there is nothing greater than the grace of God. You can send yourself out of God's kingdom, but Jesus sacrificed yourself into his kingdom if you'll believe it. And this is how the story ends. It's, it's a wild story because in verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins. I don't even know how to describe what good news that would have been to a woman that's going to depend on her dependence. But she now gets twins. The, the chapter starts with Judah losing two sons. Now he's getting two sons. God is such a God of restoration. Verse 28, when she was in labor, one put out his hand, and the midwife took and put a scarlet thread around on his hand, saying, this one came out first. We see a hand in scarlet. There's a hand in scarlet pointing to, through this woman, one day, there's going to be a salvation that's going to come from a hand in scarlet. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. You broke through. Like, how did this happen? Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means this, this breach or this, this breakthrough. And afterwards, his brother would come out with a scarlet thread in his hand. His name was, was Zero. Why? Because this is a family that is pointing to the ultimate descendant of the ultimate Judah that is going to come out one day. And they're going to take him, and he's going to be in the, in the womb of the earth via crucifixion. And they're going to say, well, how could he possibly break forth? But that God is going to manifest in the flesh, and he's going to break through, through resurrection. And to all those that believe in him, they will come to life. But when I read this story, guys, I just, I just want to close like this, because I frankly got disgusted with Judah reading this story. I'm thinking, God, why would you, why would you choose Judah? I mean, Tamar saves the day in many ways here, but why would you choose, choose Judah? And then I, I remembered the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And how God made a promise to Abraham. And I was reading a story this week about a man that was working at a, at a camp. And 
and they would bring people from the inner city, and they brought a group of senior citizens in from the inner city into this camp to kind of give them a change of pace for the week. And, and they had two lines. One line was for everybody that was in a wheelchair or a walker, and one for the people that could just walk normally and, um, you know, upright and everything. And, and then when they went in there, there was one woman that she kept, she would consistently go over to the line of the people that needed assistance, and she would break through, and she would push her way to the front and say, give me my food, and, and take your food, then go. And, 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 he's, and he looked at her, and he said, hey, no, you can't do that. You need to get in the other line. And she acted like he didn't even exist. So the next meal, she did the same thing. She, she came and pushed her way through, knocked people down. I mean, in a wheelchair, knocked people down to their, their walkers and, and give my food. And they had to literally create a human shield to keep her from doing this. What made it worse is as the week went on, she refused to take a shower. And so she smelled so bad, the whole camp was being littered by her, her aroma. They finally took her and forced her into a shower and made her take a shower. And so it was later in the week this guy that was working at this, this camp, he was out on one of the hills with a very sophisticated elderly gentleman that spoke 17 languages, very well educated, very well dressed, and he was talking to him about, you know, the learning how Hungarian is different than other languages and things like this, and, and just then that woman walks by, and he, in his mind, he thought, oh my gosh, this woman's been the, the, the absolute disaster of this camp, and, and he turned to her and said, you know, she's really made this camp pretty, you know, rough this week, and the man looks at him and says, well, that woman is actually my wife. And he didn't even know what to say. And the man took his, took his shirt and he rolled it up and he pulled out his, his arm and he had a tattoo of a very long number. Because he had been, and she had been, a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp. He said, we had been split up when, when they took us, and I was in one city, she was in Auschwitz, and they would take her without anesthesia. They would remove parts of her brain. At one time, she'd been a concert pianist that traveled the, the better parts of Europe. I mean, just the, she was the greatest woman you could ever know, and talented and beautiful and gifted. And then he said this, I remember her. And everybody tells me to put her in a home and to let her go, but I just can't because I remember her. And I closed the book where I was reading this story, and I went to Deuteronomy where God said, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Judah, we are watching the iniquity of Abraham get visited. But the very next verse says, but I will remember the righteous for a thousand. For a thousand generations. Why would I choose Judah, Mike? Because I remembered my servant Abraham. And I keep my word. And there's me. It's just me. People in this room on, watching online, I do not deserve his grace. But the Bible says that when God rolled up his sleeves and Jesus goes up on a cross, he was permanently marked. Because before I was even born and before you were even born, he remembered his covenant to his people. 
Even so much so that right now, just in case we're wondering, he bears our scars from the worst of all the concentration camps called Calvary. He bears your scars and mine. No matter how dark the sin, no matter how twisted the story, there is nothing greater than the grace of God. And if you've not yet placed the totality of your faith in him, I want you to do it today. If you haven't yet identified your stuff, your junk, you got the, the only part of the deal is the blood only covers what we will confess. That's the deal. The, the, the blood has already made the atonement. The scarlet cord has already been established. And there is a blessing that goes for thousands of generations. But you've got to come and come humble.